Welcome to Emerging Technology Horizons. Uh, I'm Mark Lewis, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Arun Serafin. And we're going to do something a little bit different for this podcast episode. Um, we're going to talk to Arun about his career and what brought him to the Emerging Technologies Institute. Um, as I hope our listeners and viewers know, uh, Arun recently joined us as the deputy director, although you know I still like to think of you as the co-director. But, but Helping, helping to shape the Emerging Technologies Institute. So, so first, Arun, welcome to ETI. Welcome to NDIA. Uh, we're all delighted to have you on board. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to, it's great to be here. This is a, a, a great organization, NDIA, and we're building a great organization, I hope, I think. I think. ETI. Um, and it's a, it's a great team that you've already got started here, and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. We're, 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 we're moving out. We're already doing some great things. We've got, you know, uh, studies and workshops and well podcast podcasts um, and have very ambitious plans to do more and uh, bring bringing new staff on board as well as we speak um, so I, I actually I wanted to focus this episode um, on on you and and yeah I know you're, you've got that nervous look but 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 seriously I'm I'm you know you've you've had such a, a rich career in science and technology uh, PhD from MIT uh, you worked in the FRDC world, you worked at DARPA, but you've also worked in the executive branch, you worked uh, in the legislative branch. Um, tell us a little bit, how did, how did you get, what, what was your start? How, what, what directed you towards defense so The reason I can't hold a job is because um, I'm glorified undecided. Um, going back to being an undergraduate, I have a degree in political science and in engineering. Um, proud Stony Brook University graduate, mm -hmm. um, and in in the course of doing that, I decided that you know I was really interested as uh, and I went on to material science. I was really interested in material science speak in interfaces, sort of the interface between science and what policy, science and politics, science and the military. Mm -hmm. And so by hook or by crook, I've ended up in a series of positions which have let me explore that interface between science, technology, and uh, all of these different things. So, you know, how do you, how do you get there? Well, it's, there's not, a, at least back then, there was not any clear path. So uh, after finishing undergraduate and not knowing whether I should go for a graduate degree in political science or in engineering, I decided you really have to be smart to make a living in political science. And you could probably just get through in engineering. So I decided to get the PhD from MIT mm -hmm. in in what was hot at the time, nanotechnology, still is hot to some extent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But after doing five years and getting that PhD done, I was still undecided and uh, managed to find myself a job back down here in town working for a think tank, like you said, an FFRDC, the Institute for Defense Analysis, uh, working on some interesting technology and policy issues as they related to the military. Um, while I was doing that, I uh, was a, a young man at the time in Washington, D.C. I had a lot of friends working on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. and knew that uh, there was a program which let uh, PhDs, technical PhDs, come and serve one-year fellowships on Capitol Hill, run through the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science. Right. I applied, and on my second try, got a fellowship to go work on Capitol Hill. And uh, I did a one-year assignment in 1999 working for Senator Joseph Lieberman uh, to try to explore what it was like to do science policy on Capitol Hill. And so that year was really interesting. Uh, one is we started working on something called the National Nanotechnology Initiative, 
which I got to play a role in developing back then. Um, the other thing is by some weird coincidence, I got uh, caught up with Senator Lieberman in the year that he was picked to be the vice presidential nominee in the 2000 election, which is a famous election, uh, which uh, was very contested and ended up in a recount in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I tried to extend my fellowship through the Florida recount and did, and it turned out that we didn't win. And so I didn't get to go to the White House in that run. Um, so tried to figure out what to do next with my life, and my one-year fellowship was over. So I found a, a way to stay on the Hill and work at the House Science Committee. Um, again, caught up in events. 2001, uh, working at the House Science Committee, uh, the, there was a 50-50 Senate at the time, and a single senator switched sides so that the, a, uh, the Democrats took over the United States Senate, took over the Senate Armed Services Committee, needed someone to cover technology for them, knew me from my days with Senator Lieberman. And so because that one senator switched sides, I got a job working for the Senate Armed Services Committee in 2001, and it was great. A uh, chance to work with DARPA, a chance to work with the Pentagon. Think about modernization. It was a different era then. Don Rumsfeld was the secretary. We were really trying to focus on modernization. And I got there just in time to work on that until about three months later was 9-11. Um, everything changed, and I had a very interesting time working on the Armed Services Committee, thinking about how technology was going to support the global war on terrorism, uh, as well as operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and had a great time doing that, working with senators, working on the committee, working with the Pentagon to try to move technologies more rapidly into theater, and as well as to uh, help work with the newly established DHS, uh, newly coordinated uh, in intelligence community at the time, um, and loved it. Um, did that for about 10 years, decided to try something else, got myself hired by DARPA, and lent over to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where I worked for um, Dr. John Holdren, who is the President's Science Advisor. Again, working on national security, but much more with an interagency perspective. Uh, how does the interagency as a whole, ranging from the Pentagon to the intelligence community to DHS, to even the National Science Foundation and NASA, work on big national security problems, pushing new technologies, and we got to work on some interesting things. There was, uh, it was efforts to do um, a lot of work in brain science at the time. There was a lot of efforts to uh, uh, use the SBIR program more. At the time, that was during the, uh, the era of the establishment of the Defense Innovation Unit in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes uh, across the country, and so that was fantastic. Uh, I love my time in the White House, uh, but that too ran its course decided to do something else and crawled right back to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, my second run at Senate Armed Services Committee was slightly different. I really focused on acquisition reform. It happened to be at the time when uh, one of our other podcast guests, Bill Greenwalt, came back to the Armed Services Committee and I got to work with him and at the time, Chairman John McCain uh, and Chairman uh, Thornberry on the House side mm -hmm. on a lot of new acquisition reform ideas, all with this theme of how do you move technology into the hands of war fighters more quickly. Um, so building on some of the stuff that we had done previously, um, really tried to streamline how we can work with small businesses, really uh, increase the use of something called other transactions authorities, uh, streamline contracting as best as we could to try to help DOD embrace commercial technologies, not entirely different than the things we had done, been doing in the previous decade, yeah. Um, yeah. but just with a different label on it. 
Um, and I think one of the other things we did on the side was to uh, look at the office of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics mm -hmm. uh, and decide that there was not enough emphasis on research and engineering and new technologies in that giant office. And so the Congress and I got to play a big role in this, split that office into two, creating the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, where you worked eventually, yeah. the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainability. Um, this has all been wonderful. Got to work on a lot of great things on Capitol Hill, um, but uh, had a long, long tenure in government service and decided it was time to do something else. Had a lot of choices, looked around a lot of places outside the government, decided the best place in the, in the world to be, to work <laughs> on the ideas of moving new technologies into the hands of the warfighters, thinking about the needs of the taxpayers, thinking about an innovation community that really wants to support but maybe the system sometimes doesn't make it easy for them to support and push the best technologies into the hands of our operators uh, all the time. Uh, the best place to do that was here <laughs> at the Emerging Technologies Institute. So that's how Great. I'm here. And my basically, just like every other job you get in Washington, your business card changed, but the kinds of things you're trying to get done are about the same. So it's, it's great to be. I know, I'm, as you were going through that, I'm, I was smiling because I, you know, I was keeping track of all the times we overlapped. So, um, when I first started in the Pentagon in 2004, so you were already on the Hill and we were interacting. I'm, I started saying on a weekly basis, there were times when it seemed like we were interacting on a daily basis. And then I finished up the Pentagon, went back to the university for a couple of years, then I wound up at the Institute for Defense Analyses. And actually, I don't know, I don't know if, you, if you remember this, but basically the reason I took the job at IDA, they offered me the opportunity to run the part of IDA that supports the White House. So you had me in, you had me meet with all the folks at OSTP that I'd be working with. And I went home that night and said, oh, that sounds like a pretty good job. So, so that's, that's actually the reason I wound up at IDA. Um, I'll take credit for that. Yeah, and then, then, um, and then of course, uh, as you said, I wound up back in R&E and we got to interact on a, on a literally on a, on, a, on a weekly, sometimes daily basis again. And one of the things that your team at, at STIPI, Science and Technology Policy yeah. Institute, did with us at OSTP at the time is something that we're going to hopefully work on here, which is this idea of the STEM workforce. Right. Um, I think we were calling it STEM by that point. At the beginning of my career, we didn't know that acronym. Um, but the idea is that there are, are a whole lot of uh, really good people who want to work with the government and work in the laboratories or work as a program manager and help the government spend money or work as a regulator in some technology issue or even work as an operator. If you think about the technical operators we have, people who are doing cybersecurity defense or people who are doing chem bio defense. Those are very technical positions and very operational, very far removed from basic science. Well, for that whole set of people who have this kind of STEM background and want to help, the government has found a way to make it as difficult as possible to join the workforce, no matter what you want to do. And one of the things that your team did, which was great for me, is is to help establish some interagency efforts to try to find best practices and bring people on board more quickly right. uh, and share those across the government, as well as to push uh, the powers that be, in this case, OPM, uh, OMB, and the Hill, to create new authorities to bring people on faster. And I will say that the, the work that, that your, your team did back then led to a lot of analysis, a lot of reports, and a lot of those things were put into law over the, over the next decade and now are routinely used, especially in DOD, by the labs and test ranges to bring people on faster, to pay them what they're worth, to figure out ways to keep them in the workforce. And that was because of the great work that your team at STIPI did. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, that, was, that, was, that was obviously a really meaningful activity. 
because uh, I, you know, I, I share your passion for 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 seeking ways to get the best and the brightest to work on behalf of the government, work on behalf, work on these these incredibly important, sometimes existential problems that we have in in defense, and and also, but I'm still, even in my most recent position, continued to be amazed at some of the barriers that we continue to erect to get the best and the brightest into 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 the government. Um, and I often have people talk to me about the STEM crisis, and I'd say, well, you know, it, it, in my mind, it isn't convincing people to go into the STEM disciplines. It's getting the best and the brightest to work on the really important problems. And, and how, how do we how do we sh how do we encourage that? Yeah, and it's not like every single STEM expert we need them to have a PhD. Right. We don't. Right. In fact, we probably have <laughs> more than enough of those. But maybe yeah. not. Um, and we also don't need them all to work in the government. And that's one thing that I think is going to be great about being here yeah. is that this workforce needs to be spread across the government, across industry. And, and we have 1,800 industry uh, members in NDIA. But amongst those 1,800, we also have 50 or so, or a growing number of university members. And yeah. we need these technical experts working in these national security disciplines in all of those different sectors, if we're really going to develop and push the best technologies forward. Yeah, I agree. I was, so when I was a graduate student, um, I was actually funded on a fellowship that was run by the Office of Naval Research, very similar to some of the current fellowships. Um, it was a really good. It was a really good deal at the time. It was one of the best fellowships out there, and it did not did not have a service requirement, as opposed to some of the fellowships today, like the Smart Fellowship. You you have to work in a government laboratory after you get the fellowship. And I remember talking to someone at ONR at the time, the person who ran the program, and I, I kind of, you know, expressed, I, I kind of asked about that. Why isn't there a service requirement? And she had this wonderful response. She said, you know, we don't care if you come to work for the Navy, although we'd be delighted if you, if you did. We don't care if you wind up in a government laboratory. If you wind up in academia working on problems of interest to us, if you wind up in industry working on problems of interest to, to us, we consider that a big win. And, and I've, I've carried that, so I, I, I agree with you. It's not just about the government labs, although that's always a good thing, but it, it's, it's the broader, broader uh, S&T enterprise. Yeah, I agree with you, I'm, and I understand that even though my fellowship was only funded by the Air Force, so it's of lesser quality, I think, than yours, <laughs> um, what you need in a system like this is both high quality, yeah. and you need a system that creates a diverse workforce, which is diversity of experiences and diversity of kinds of people, and diversity of goals, yeah. but you need flow. And we haven't had a system that allows flow between the various sectors in the system. So I need people with really great university expertise like yourself to take it over to the government and bring that university expertise to places like the Air Force and the Pentagon like you did, and then eventually move over to industry and bring that in expertise over to industry like you're doing and like I'm trying to do. And, and with that movement and flow between those different sectors, I think that's when you get the best ideas out. Now, our system is designed to limit flow mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. name of things like avoiding conflict of interest and in the strange mismatches and things like compensation levels right. between these different sectors. And so that was one of the things that we got to work on with your team that I've worked on on the Hill and that we hope to work on here is how do we improve that flow between the different sectors? Right. So I was... I benefited when I did when I worked for the Air Force. I did it under the Intergovernmental Personnel Act, the IPA system, and it was an incredible. It was it was it was wonderful. Um, it, it was the best of all possible worlds. And I know you spent a lot of time thinking through how you expand those activities, how you create similar opportunities for industry, for for example. 
Right, and you know, actually here at ETI, we are trying to make use of it ourselves by working with the, with the government, with the Pentagon, and using some of their new exchange programs to try to bring in folks from the government to come work with us here at ETI, bring their unique perspectives. Maybe we can share with them some industry perspectives, and I can share some health perspectives. They go back to the government, bring those things back with them, hopefully improve the system as a whole with hopefully no ethics being harmed in the process. <laughs> yeah, no ethics were harmed in the production of this. Um, I know, I, I, so my last government job, I had a team of 11 principal directors, and almost all of them were either IPAs or HQEs, highly qualified experts. And again, it was a great way to bring uh, expertise. And the ones who weren't uh, HQEs and, I, and IPAs uh, were detailed from other, other organizations, which I know is also something that you've championed the exchange across different parts of the government. Right, and it was something that we, we thought about a lot with, with your folks at, at, at Stippy, and we thought a lot about a lot on the Hill as well, is that you know you have to design these exchanges, one, say it again, avoid the conflicts of interest, avoid any ethical issues, mm -hmm. but you needed to design them in a way that makes sense both for the organization that's lending the person, yeah. Um, because you don't want them to be lending their, let's say, B-team players all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you want to make it make sense for the organization absorbing the person because you don't want, arguably, bad people dumped on you. Yeah. And so, well, now, how do you, how do, you do that? It's, it's not that easy, right? My office has a lot of work to do. Fred's my best guy, and you want him. And I know that's good, yeah. but who's going to do Fred's work while he's gone? Yeah. And so sitting, sifting through all of those complications is something that we tried to do. And, and I think OSD, um, especially the human capital initiative folks over in, in acquisition and sustainment, are really trying to work through those things. And they've got a decent program running now, which is, which is allowing some of these exchanges to occur. Um, circling back, I mean, I wouldn't be into any of this had I not been in the original fellowship program, which was taking scientists who normally never would have gone to the Hill Letting them try it for a year. Some people like me get lost and stay for 20. I, you know, I'm in exactly the same category. I had never envisioned that my career would be anything other than a university professor. And I first got involved with the Air Force Scientific Advisory Board part-time. But then when I did full-time on the air staff, that took my career in a whole different direction. And if there hadn't been the IPA program that would allow me to do that, uh, I'd probably still be back on a university campus right now. Right. Um, I mean, you think the models that we could use, the one I think of the most all the time is the reservist model. If you think about um, how many people serving in the reserves right now are also working in defense industry or in the commercial sector, mm -hmm. and every day bringing that experience to their reserve duty or bringing their reserve duty experience back to their, their time in their companies, it's only, I think, good yeah. um, for both the, the companies and the government. Um, and that's the kind of thing I think we need to figure out how to replicate more on this one. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think I can think of a number of disciplines where they draw on reserve strength. Uh, the, the pilots, pilots, for example, um, you look at uh, National Guard pilots. Some of them are, have an, an incredible expertise because they fly commercial aircraft in, as part of their day job. And they bring that experience to, to uh, their defense role. Right. Um, lots of other examples. Um, I will say, my own observation, one of the biggest challenges with those sorts of lending activities like the IPA program, and I face this personally, and I saw that in some of the people that I've worked with, is when the parent organization loans that person and then doesn't prepare for their return. 
and doesn't think, I've now got an individual with a new skill set, new capabilities. How do I leverage that? Right. So what you don't want is to send someone off on this great detail opportunity. Yeah. And then when you know when Sam comes back, you say, Sam, this is great. I saw you climb Mount Everest while you were gone. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Here's your cubicle. Get back to work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, Sam will leave yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Uh, I've done that once to one organization. I did, I did that too. <laughs> um, you need to figure out how to make it a, a safe landing, how to make it a career growing, broadening experience, yeah. and then take that person and put them on a track to something bigger and better. Otherwise, they've seen the bright lights of the city and they're never going to come home. Yeah. And that was something that we, we, are, we are continually struggling with because organizations just aren't set up to reabsorb. Absolutely, absolutely. So, switching gears a little bit, um, what are the what are the areas? I know you're passionate about a number of different areas in, in related to emerging technologies. What are the areas that you hope to focus on uh, um, primarily now that you're here at ETI? So, I think one of the things that we're in a really good position to do here at ETI is to reclaim the narrative that innovation can come from defense industry. Uh, and defense industry and, and membership of NDIA ranges from the biggest of defense primes that you've heard of to the smallest of garage little tiny businesses working on some software thing that you've never heard of right. to large universities to small universities. I think all of those different organizations working in partnership with the Pentagon for decades now have produced all of the capabilities that the military uses today, whether it's the hypersonics or the chembio defense or the software systems or everything. Um, unfortunately, in town, there's a narrative that says good ideas no longer come from defense. Right. They only come from, let's say, Silicon Valley. And I just think that's not true. And so I think one of the things that we can do here at ETI is to adjust that narrative a little by maybe finding those good news stories that show that you know working with those traditional defense contractors, those traditional manufacturers, we've produced some really interesting services and gear. It's found its way to the warfighter, and it's helping support our national security, protecting our warfighters, reducing costs, whatever. Um, I think we can play a role in finding those stories and holding them up, and it's one of the things I think we're going to try to focus on down in Miami at the Science and Engineering Technology Conferences finding those and talking about those good news stories. I think telling those good news stories, one, um, creates an enthusiasm and an excitement amongst the workforce, or it makes them feel like they're at least respected and honored and loved a little, yeah. and not always sort of put down on all the time. Um, second, I think it uh, will create a magnet for more people, whether they're companies or individuals, to kind of, you want to join this winning team. We're doing interesting things. We're doing, we're doing important things. And we're succeeding in moving things out into the hands of our real customer, the warfighter. Um, and I think the other thing is it, it raises the profile, it creates enthusiasm among senior leaders. Whether those senior leaders are in the Pentagon, in the White House, or in the Congress, they always want to get out in front of the parades. Right. They always want to support things that are working and exciting things. And they've been told that certain things are exciting and certain things are not exciting. And I don't think it's fair the way, the way those stories are being told. And so. If we can show these senior leaders that, you know, for example, the Small Business Innovation Research Program is really doing some interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really pushing those out to the warfighter. It's really setting up new companies to grow our industrial base, to increase competition. 
um, we need to hold that program up. And then while we're holding the program up, we can take a look at the program and say it needs to be tweaked this way. It needs to be funded more this way, or it needs to be adjusted whatever way. Um, so I think that's one thing I think that we can, we can really do. So the, the theme here is the Pentagon is just really bad at telling its good news stories, and it's really good at telling its bad news stories. And so we need to sort of maybe help tell those good news stories a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, you know, I would often have students tell me, oh, they didn't want to work for the big aerospace primes because they're, 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 they're yesterday's companies. I'd point out one of the reasons that they became the primes is because they're generally really good at what they do. That's how they grew. That's how they became uh, uh, so, such, such significant players. But I will say, w one of the things that attracted me to NDIA um, is the fact that this is an organization that cuts, that goes right down the defense industrial base from you know, the, the biggest players to the mom and pop shops, the, you know, the, the folks working in their garage to produce something for defense. And that to me was, was also really intriguing that we get this, this whole, whole of industry view of, of and how it relates to emerging technologies. And I think that's the differentiator from ETI and, and maybe some of our peers, right? Because you, you and I could talk about, the, you know what the world needs? The world needs another Washington-based technology think tank. <laughs> yeah, right. And maybe not everyone would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there is no Washington-based technology think tank that can tap into 1,800 member companies, 50 universities, 27 or whatever technical divisions, and 30 chapters, and all of those thousands of members for that expertise, for that unique industry university perspective, to put out the kinds of products, whether they're a podcast, a webinar, report, conference uh, um, forums, sessions and, and symposiums at, at those conferences, whatever, whatever we want, um, we're uniquely placed, unlike some of our friends and competitors. Who we love, to, but yeah. To we all we love, <laughs> to tap into that whole ecosystem better than most. That whole ecosystem and the fact that it is basically everyone also gives us a special place with the Pentagon and the government right. in that we are a very neutral place to gather people, to openly discuss things without favoring anyone in particular. And we've, we've tried to do that. Even in my time here, you know, we've had, we've had uh, workshops and things like hypersonics for the government, with the government. We're about to do another one in energetics with the government. Um, microelectronics. We, microelectronics. Uh, we did a, a nice session with Mike Brown from DIU, or, or, or you know, we're hopefully planning more with the government as well moving forward. So you know, that's what's different, right? Yeah. That's what gives us a little bit unique. At least that's what I tell myself when I came to work. work for you. That's that's what I tell myself as well. And with that, um, I'm. I think that's about all the time we have for this episode. But this has been a fascinating discussion. So Arun, again, welcome to NDIA. I can't tell you how delighted we are to have you here. And looking forward to doing great things together. Thanks. It's great to be here.